Hello, and welcome to the Dr. Jocker's Functional Nutrition Podcast, the show designed to give you science-based solutions to improve your health and life. I'm Dr. David Jockers, doctor of natural medicine and creator of drjockers.com, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm here to tell you that your body was created to heal itself, and on this show, we focus on strategies you can apply today to heal and function at your best. Thanks for spending time with me, and let's go into the show. This podcast is sponsored by our friends over at Paleo Valley, and one of their products that I use on a regular basis is their apple cider vinegar complex, and I use it to help support my energy, my blood sugar, and to promote good digestion. You guys have heard me talk about the importance of stomach acid in the past, Stomach acid helps us prevent against pathogens. So when we eat food, pathogens come in like parasites and bad bacteria. Good stomach acid helps kill those things. It also helps us break down protein and absorb minerals and different nutrients. Well, apple cider vinegar is one of the best things you can be using to help promote the right amount of stomach acid to be produced. And that's why I take this with meals. On top of that, the apple cider vinegar, really it's really good for blood sugar stability. See, when you have blood sugar imbalances, that can make you crash in the afternoon and cause your body to hold on to fat, especially belly fat, which makes you feel hungrier more often. You have cravings. Well, good news. You can actually take apple cider vinegar. Research has shown that it helps reduce the glycemic load and improve your insulin sensitivity and that is really key for all day energy. On top of that, it helps with weight loss by lowering your fasting blood glucose, by increasing your metabolism, improving your muscle performance so you can crush your workouts, regulating your appetite so you feel like you're in control and you're not just driven by your hunger and cravings. It also decreases insulin and that's key because insulin is the fat storage hormone and insulin, more insulin we have in our bloodstream, the more inflammation our body's going to produce. So apple cider vinegar is powerful for getting insulin under control, bringing down inflammation and helping you burn fat for fuel. So what I love about the apple cider vinegar complex is it's a thousand milligrams of apple cider vinegar, about a one and a half tablespoons of apple cider vinegar. And then they also combined it with other warming herbs. They have 300 milligrams of turmeric, one of the most powerful anti-inflammatory herbs, 300 milligrams of ginger and turmeric and ginger really synergize to have a powerful anti-inflammatory effect in the body. They're also great for the digestion, for gut health, for stomach acid production. There's also 150 milligrams of cinnamon in here. We know cinnamon is one of the best things for blood sugar support and 50 milligrams of lemon. And lemon really is good for stomach acid production. Bile flow helps stimulate production of bile, pancreatic enzymes, so we can really digest our food optimally. And Paleo Valley, all their ingredients are all, they're all organic. So no toxins in there. And it is really pure and it works, guys. So definitely check this out. You can go to paleovalley.com, use the coupon code JOCKERS at checkout to save 15%. I know you guys will love this product. Well, hey, everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Got another great Q&A session here with our wonderful health coach, Melissa. And we're going to be covering some really good topics. You guys sent us some great questions for this month. We have got some questions coming in on H. pylori. And so we're going to talk more about that acid reflux. We're going to talk about oxalates, really hot topic that a lot of people in the natural health world are talking about. So we're going to give our thoughts on oxalates. We're going to talk about cortisol, the stress hormone. We're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk about what your diet should look like if you don't have a gallbladder. Really important thing to, to understand because you may need to modify your diet if you've had your gallbladder taken out. So we're going to go through that. And we're also going to talk about, in fact, our first question is going to be all about high ferritin and inflammatory uh, agents in our bloodstream. We're going to talk about high cholesterol, some different, different factors. We seem to always get questions about cholesterol. So almost every Q&A podcast, we're addressing that. So we're going to go through that in detail as well. So joining me again is our wonderful health coach, Melissa Noor. She works with people all over the country and really helps customize 
health plans for them, looks at lab work and uh, finds the root cause of chronic health issues and customized health plans for people to get well. So you guys can check her out on our on our coaching page on drjockers.com and her email, you can just reach out to her via email as well as melissa at drjockers.com. Pretty easy, just melissa at drjockers.com. So if you're struggling with a chronic health issue, you can get some expert advice, right? And really work with somebody. Again, she works with people virtually, so you can be anywhere in the world and she can work with you and help figure out the root cause factors and then help customize a plan to help you get well. And so Melissa, how are you doing today? I am great. I'm so happy to be here. Happy to do this with you. I love this, what we're doing here with the Q&A and just giving people great information, a lot of content. So, And we've got great questions. I was excited to see some of these. So are you ready to get started? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do yeah, it. Awesome. Okay. So the first one is going to be from Christina, and this was from YouTube. My ferritin is high and my CRP is high. So CRP is C-reactive protein. Should I give blood? I'm a 69-year-old female, healthy weight, lost much with keto, cholesterol, LDL is also high. Should I eat less fat, less red meat? Not sure what to do. So this is a great question because we often um, see ferritin. Ferritin is actually a test for your iron stores, but when it's elevated, particularly along with CRP, we know there's a lot of inflammation going on, right? Yeah, for sure. So ferritin, when it's elevated, it can be a, a uh, acute phase reactant for oxidative stress. And oxidative stress is kind of the precursor to inflammation. When oxidative stress goes up, inflammation then comes out and uh, tries to really clean up the area. And so obviously ferritin can, because it's a storage form of iron. So there are some people that have uh, hyperchromatosis uh, where they have excess iron in their blood. And there's a kind of a genetic condition there um, where they are just storing lots and lots of iron. But typically with that, you're going to see all the iron markers. You're going to see the red blood cells high. You're going to see the hematocrit high. You're going to see, um, you know, basically everything, everything, all the iron stores high. And this, the conditions, hemochromatosis, I mentioned hyperchromatosis, actually hemochromatosis, hemochromatosis. And so, um, so that can be a factor, you know, and she only gave us a snippet of her lab. So we're just going to kind of go, go off of what, what she gave us. Typically, most commonly, it's not hemochromatosis. Most commonly when people have high serum ferritins flagged high on the lab, it's usually related to this sort of oxidative stress, high level of oxidative stress. And then of course, she also has the high sensitivity C-reactive protein, the CRP high, and that's a sign of inflammation in the system. So those kind of go hand in hand. So obviously her inflammation is up. She also mentioned that her LDL was up as well, which we don't necessarily know what she means by up, right? Because a lot of things are flagged. I think if it's over, I think with LDL, I can't remember the exact number. I know total cholesterol, if it's up over 200, it's going to be flagged. Um, and so sometimes for a lot of people, their cholesterol may be higher, but all their inflammatory markers are low and they have a good LDL to HDL ratio that's less than three and their HDL to triglyceride ratio, or their, I should say their triglyceride to HDL ratio. So the amount of triglycerides to HDL, um, oftentimes is under two or close to one. And if that's the case, I don't really, you know, it's not something I worry about. We didn't get all the markers there. However, she also mentioned she lost a lot of weight doing keto. So, you know, one of the keys when you're trying to reduce inflammation off the bat is losing weight. If you have excess body fat, um, that chances are you have excess visceral fat, which is the kind of fat that surrounds our organs. And that's very pro-inflammatory fat. So the fat cells themselves actually release it's actually acts like an endocrine organ. They actually release cytokines and inflammatory agents, and that will drive up C-reactive protein. So just the fact that she's lost weight is a good first step in helping her body get, get better. So that's great. Now, she mentioned, should I give blood, right? And the reason why she's asking that is because the ferritin's high. She, one way, so when people have hemochromatosis, in order to get, because high iron in the system is actually pro-oxidative. So it actually, it, it rusts us, right? It, it turns on oxidative stress in the system. So one, one of the keys for people with hemochromatosis is actually giving blood and, they, and we recommend them doing it. 
you know, typically every three months, right? Depending on, you know, how severe the hemochromatosis is. Some people need to do it every month. Um, and so that can actually reduce the amount of iron in the system and reduce oxidative stress. So that can be helpful. But in her case, based on the lab she gave us, I wouldn't say she has hemochromatosis. Still a possibility. would have to look at all the other labs. But I wouldn't say that's the case. So I don't think she needs to give blood here. Um, she also asked some other questions. Uh, she said, should I eat less red meat? And the reason why she would ask that is because red meat is high in iron, right? And so she's like, well, is it the eye? Is that causing uh, the red meat that I'm getting? Is that causing the high ferritin? And for somebody with hemochromatosis, high iron in the diet could be a factor. And so if they're not giving blood, they would want to reduce the amount of iron. In her case, again, we don't know that. So we don't know that red meat's going to be a problem. The other reason why she might be asking is because of the LDL cholesterol. And there's a, you know, obviously the, the popular opinion in our society is that red meat, because it's higher in saturated fat and cholesterol, actually increases your LDL cholesterol. Although what we know is that dietary uh, dietary cholesterol really has almost no impact on your, um, your overall cholesterol. It's really has more to do with, uh, other factors like how well your thyroid is functioning, your, uh, blood sugar, your insulin levels, right? Things like that play a much bigger role. Your vitamin D, your, your sun exposure, that plays a much bigger role in what your cholesterol balance looks like. But if you have high levels of inflammation and oxidative stress, that oxidative stress can damage the endothelial lining, the inner lining of the blood vessel, which can then cause a rise in LDL because LDL cholesterol is bringing components to help help heal the endothelial lining of the blood vessels, right? It's, it's helping to bring uh, things like phospholipids to help heal cell membranes. It's bringing coenzyme Q10, vitamin A, all the fat-soluble nutrients. It's basically, we think about it like a, a bus carrying nutrients to help heal a cell membrane. And so we're going to have more of these buses. We're going to need to get more cargo out to the cells if we have higher amounts of oxidative stress and inflammation. And cholesterol, of course, can get oxidized. LDL cholesterol can get oxidized if the root cause, the ox the high oxidative stress and inflammation is not put under control. So we, that's really the key is we got to put that under control in order to get balance in this situation. And so I wouldn't say get rid of red meat uh, off the bat based on what she said, but there are many other things we can do to help reduce inflammation. And Melissa, I'll, I'll let you jump in there. Yeah. So my first thought when I read this, just looking at she has been on keto and her ferritin's high and her CRP is high is what type of keto diet did she do? Because mm. I often have clients come to me and they've been on keto, but they weren't eating an anti-inflammatory keto diet because you can be keto and eat very unhealthy. So you could eat, I uh, had a client that was eating the tops off of fast food pizza. Instead of eating the crust, he was seeing the tops off the pizza, um, you know, chili dogs, things like that. They're, or a mm. hamburger at a fast food restaurant without eating the bun. So if you're if you're eating that type of keto diet, then that could be what's underlying the cholesterol possibly and the ferritin and CRP being high. So one thing I would really want to know is what her diet looked like. Was she eating a plant-based keto? So lots of vegetables um, with her in her keto diet. And then what she's doing now for diet. And so, and then of course, there's many factors that can contribute to inflammation. Um, diet is one of the most common, the toxic oils that we get from like canola oil and vegetable oils, those processed oils, re refined, um, I don't know if she's still doing keto, but like re refined carbohydrates from processed food. Um, so we'd love to know what her diet looks like. Also toxins, so different toxins can create inflammation in the body. So looking at her overall lifestyle, is she um, trying to avoid toxins and then also detoxing on a regular basis? Because we can't uh, completely avoid toxins. They're in every, you know, all of our products. So it's just, you know, ubiquitous in our environment. So we have to take daily steps to um, detoxify and supporting liver health is important for healthy cholesterol. And our liver is our detox organ. So um, those are my main thoughts on that. And as far as not sure what to do, I mean, the diet's really the the big piece here, I, I think. So looking at that, 
and looking also at any possible underlying infections that may be contributing or immune mm. system dysfunction that's contributing to the inflammation in the body. So yeah, for sure. That's high with CRP high when there's um, infections going on. For sure. And that's actually where I was going to go. So if she's got the diet, if the diet is anti-inflammatory, if she's keeping those seed oils out, keeping refined carbohydrates, eating a nutrient-dense diet, trying to limit the amount of chemicals, right, coming in from processed foods as well as, uh, you know, commercial animal products rather than grass-fed, you know, the grass-fed Regenerative, regeneratively raised, pasture-raised animal products are going to have lower amount of toxins, more nutrients, and that's what we want to do to help bring down inflammation in our system. So we're doing that. If you got the diet lined up, then you really need to look at infections. If if you're still dealing with high ferritin, you're dealing with high C-reactive protein, we have to consider infections. Most commonly, gut infections, um, whether it's parasites, whether it's overgrowth of certain types of bacteria. Um, could also be candida or fungal species or viruses, right? Viruses can also cause oxidative stress in the system, raise up inflammation as well. So we would want to look at the lab work and, and better understand that. And then, you know, another factor could be, for example, mold exposure or some sort of chronic toxin that, that, that individual is being exposed to perhaps heavy metals, um, perhaps formaldehyde because they got, you know, a new car that's off-gassing formaldehyde or new furniture that's off-gassing formaldehyde or they, they live in a home that's moldy. These are other areas that we would want to address. You know, our foundation is always trying to get the diet right, but, you know, and diet's important. However, if you're in an environment that is loaded with chemicals, that is creating massive oxidative stress in your body, you're not going to get well with diet alone. So we've got to address those things as well. So um, yeah, for sure, without a doubt. Now, what are some key supplements that you like for helping bring down inflammation? Okay, so that's a great question. And I, I have several that um, we carry. One is Pro Omega CRP. So mm. that is a fish oil with added L-glutamine or um, glutathione and curcumin. And then I like to pair that with Inflam Defense. So that's just a fantastic product. I actually take that one personally too. So it's it's got a variety of compounds, including um, ginger, curcumin. Um, can't remember all of them right now, but it's you yeah, take Boswellia, it, proteolytic uh, enzymes proteolytic in there. Enzymes, yeah, and you can we can add on depending on the level of inflammation. We have a, another supplement that is proteolytic enzymes, so you could even mm -hmm. add that one on, and that would be a really powerful anti-inflammatory um, cocktail of supplements. So th those are my top three that I use with inflammation. Yeah, that's great. And inflammation can come from a, a number of different. Uh, sources, right? And so there's different pathways. There are there is, for example, the nuclear factor kappa beta pathway. There's the tumor necrosis factor alpha pathway um, that are associated with the inflammasome. There's prostaglandin pathway, and so and then there's also intracellular, uh, the intracellular mechanism, superoxide dismutase. Um, there's peroxynitrate that that these really uh, potent mediators of oxidative stress and inflammation within the cell. And so something like omega-3s, omega-3s really impact the prostaglandin pathway for inflammation. You have got glutathione that really, really uh, um, helps intracellularly with reducing inflammation. They have things like curcumin, resveratrol, boswellia, ginger that really impact the inflammasome and, and the activation of the inflammasome. So kind of using one or two uh, broad products that have multiple different uh, ingredients, like she mentioned, the Pro Omega CRP on our on our store, as well as the Inflam Defense, really helps to target all of those pathways to bring down inflammation, and oxidative stress. So uh, really, really good stuff. Proteolytic enzymes can be great for bringing down something like C-reactive protein. It's a protein. And so you take these enzymes away from meals, they go in, they help break down circulating inflammatory proteins and cytokines. So, uh, you know, it's another, it's another way to bring down inflammation. It brings it down in the bloodstream, not at the root, not necessarily at the root. So, uh, that's where the other, the other mechanisms, right? The, the herbs, the curcumin, resveratrol, things like that. Um, as well as the omega threes, getting enough omega threes on board and, um, 
glutathione, things that boost glutathione, N-acetylcysteine or reduced form of glutathione or a liposomal form uh, will all impact that oxidative stress and inflammation balance in the system, bring things back into balance and homeostasis so your body can heal. So great question. This podcast is sponsored by Liver Health Formula from Pure Health Research. For anyone looking to ignite their fat-burning metabolism, boost their energy, and transform how they look and feel, they must start taking care of their liver. Your liver is your body's master detoxifier. It performs over 500 key functions in your body every single day. It's responsible for cleansing and removing thousands of harmful toxins, man-made chemicals, alcohol, and dangerous food additives and preservatives. And after decades of wear and tear, our livers slow down and they become sluggish. And this is why so many of us struggle with weight gain and feeling tired all the time. Fortunately, there's a simple all natural solution that I recommend. It's called Liver Health Formula. Liver Health Formula contains 12 powerful botanicals clinically proven to recharge and protect your liver at the cellular level. It helps restore your liver's detoxifying abilities. It boosts your energy levels and can kick your natural metabolism into high gear. It also works remarkably well to fight fatty liver, which is a silent epidemic affecting 100 million Americans. And right now, as a listener of our show, you can try Liver Health Formula completely risk-free and receive five free gifts when you order today. First, you're going to receive a free 30-day supply of nano-powered omega-3. This powerful blend of omega-3 fatty acids supports a healthy heart and brain with four times better absorption thanks to this special nano-delivery system. You're also getting four free eBooks to support every aspect of your health and longevity, regardless of age. Just go to getliverhelp.com forward slash jockers or call toll free at 800-282-1757 to claim your risk-free supply of liver health formula and all five bonus gifts. That's get liver help. So G E T L I V E R H E L P dot com forward slash jockers or call 800 282 1757. You're covered by their 365 day money back guarantee. So you have nothing to risk, but supplies are limited. So go head over to get liverhelp.com forward slash chalkers or call toll free at 800-282-1757 now to order liver health formula and claim your five free bonus gifts while you still can. That's getliverhelp.com forward slash chalkers or call 800-282-1757. And a good segue to our next one because we started talking about gut infections and one of the most common ones we see is H. pylori. So Mary on Instagram, her question is, I have H. pylori and acid reflux. What sort of diet and supplement should I take to get rid of this? Yeah, this is really good. H. pylori is a very, very common infection. It lives in the stomach. So most of the microbiome is not in the stomach, right? It's in the small intestine and the large intestine, particularly the large intestine. H. pylori is one of the very few, I think it's really the only that I know of that can that loves the stomach environment, okay? And so it gets into the stomach and it releases an enzyme called urease that binds with our hydrochloric acid and creates ammonia and lowers the, or I should say, it actually raises the pH, lowers the acidity in the stomach, raises the pH uh, in the stomach and creates an environment that it can really survive and thrive in. And it burrows, it's kind of a spiral rod shaped uh, bacteria, and it loves to burrow in the mucosa in the stomach where it releases enzymes that actually degrade uh, the mucosal lining in the stomach. And that's how, you know, the stomach is able to survive. You know, it, it has to produce a lot of acid. In fact, in order to digest a steak, for example, it needs, the, the pH needs to be around um, 1.5 to 2.2, which is very, very acidic. If you got that on your skin, it would burn your skin. The reason why it doesn't burn the stomach is because we have this very thick mucus layer in the stomach that protects it. But H. pylori starts to degrade that stomach the stomach lining 
and neutralizes the pH. So it brings the pH, doesn't allow the pH to get that acidic. And that's super important because you need that in order to sterilize your food, in order to break down protein, in order to break down and absorb minerals, vitamin B12, right? So people that have chronic uh, low stomach acid levels, not enough stomach, often end up with protein deficiencies because they can't break down the protein into amino acids effectively. They end up with zinc deficiencies, iron, oftentimes anemia, uh, not always, uh, but but sometimes calcium, magnesium deficiencies. They can develop vitamin B12 deficiencies. So a lot of different problems there. And uh, H. pylori also had, it's a gram negative bacteria. And that means it has two cell membranes and it will release one of those cell membranes when you know, when it dies off and that cell membrane, it's, it's, it's actually called a lipopolysaccharide, which is a really potent inflammatory mediator. So it really drives up inflammation when we have overgrowth of H. pylori, just drives up whole body inflammation. And it's, you know, one of the major uh, reasons why, you know, it's not the only cause of, of acid reflux, but it is a significant contributor of acid reflux. And the reason why is because you need a very acidic bolus. A bolus means basically pre-digested food in your stomach in order to open up the pyloric sphincter to move food from the stomach into the small intestine. When you don't get the pH of the, of the stomach acid low enough, so you don't get enough acid in there, food just sits in the gut and it will start to basically break down, putrefy, create gas, and that gas will, will put a pressure up on the esophageal sphincter and open it and now this acid that, you know, we have this thick mucus lining, so we don't feel it in our stomach. We don't have that in our esophagus. So now that acid jumps up into the esophagus, burns the esophagus, and we get that acid reflux. And so it's a con major contributor to that. So H. pylori is a really, it's a really big issue if it's overgrown in your system. All of us have it. It's a commensal bacteria. So we all have it. However, when it overgrows, now it's going to cause a lot of different problems. Right. And so for diet, um, you know, especially if she's complaining about um, acid reflux, then it, I usually recommend avoiding things like spicy and acidic foods. So tomatoes, um, even citrus fruits can be problematic for some people. Fried foods can be very irritating. So the, the goal is to heal the gut. So this is causing issues in the gut. A lot of times people will have pain or distension, bloating. Um, bad breath is a common symptom with H. pylori and, um, of course, the reflux. So want to do th foods that are very soothing to the gut, like cooked vegetables, soups, um, bone broth, things like that. So that's what I usually recommend with diet. Um, and then with protocol, we have a really great protocol that we use, which includes a antimicrobial blend called GI Clear. And then we use another blend called Gastro Soothe that has zinc carnosine and mastic gum and other compounds that are very soothing and healing. Um, and then several other products from Microbiome Labs, like the PyloGuard. Um, mm. And then MegaGuard is another. We don't have to use all of these things. We individualize all of our protocols depending on the person. These are just some of the products that we have found to be helpful because like we said, we've seen H. pylori on many of the stool tests we run. The GI map is one of the most common tests we run. It's a stool analysis, and one of the one of the bacteria that's measured on the GI map is H. pylori. So we do see it frequently. So we have lots of tools in our toolbox. We do diet, we do gut healing, and then we also have products that help too. So that's how we approach H. pylori. Yeah, for sure. And I'm glad that you mentioned the bad breath. That is a, a common symptom. And that's because, again, the ammonia that's produced. So ammonia is coming out of the breath. So oftentimes people will notice bad breath, uh, belching, burping, burping after meals, oftentimes common, sometimes constipation for a lot of people uh, can be a factor with H. pylori uh, overgrowth as well. Sometimes skin issues, rosacea, uh, there's a lot of links between H. pylori overgrowth and rosacea. So it's kind of like the reddening of the cheeks and, and um, acne can also be a factor as well, skin rashes. And then there's a lot of links in the literature between H. pylori and autoimmune thyroid disorders, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is an autoimmune disorder that causes low thyroid. And then also Graves' hyperthyroidism, 
a lot of, lot of linkage there between H. pylori overgrowth and autoimmune thyroid disorders. So if you're dealing with any of those, uh, definitely good to get H. pylori looked at. Our, our team, we're, we're experts at looking at a couple different labs. We can actually see markers and patterns for H. pylori off of blood analysis. And then also we can do more specific testing like a stool analysis where, so we can just look at a comprehensive blood analysis and, and understand if you're at a higher risk for H. pylori based on looking at markers like, for example, your zinc, your um, your globulin levels, your um, your protein, total protein, right? A lot of different markers like that. We have, there's a certain pattern for H. pylori. And then we also will do a stool analysis that will actually look at H. pylori as well called the GI map. And it will also look at how virulent the H. pylori is because the H. pylori is releasing a lot of different endotoxins. Some of those endotoxins are more damaging and create more inflammatory reactions than others. So if your virulence factors are elevated, you're at a higher risk for developing an ulcer or developing perhaps even gastric cancer. H. pylori is the number one reason, number one causative factor for stomach cancer. So we can actually look at that years and you know before you actually get a diagnosis and be able to address it. So really important if you're dealing with any of these symptoms that you're getting this sort of testing. And you mentioned this supplement called uh, PyloGuard, which has a certain type of bacteria, that uh, probiotic bacteria that helps to neutralize H. pylori, which is really interesting. And so that can be really helpful. And then you mentioned some other herbs. Aloe vera, very good for helping to soothe the stomach and create an environment that um, H. pylori doesn't like. Marshmallow root extract, slippery elm can be helpful. Mastic gum, which is kind of like this kind of stickiness, sticky gum that can get into the stomach um, and help basically pull H. pylori out of there. That can be really helpful. Licorice root extract, really good for, um, for again, building up that stomach mucosa and helping limit, helping reduce H. pylori. So that can be really, really helpful. Um, I typically will have people drink things like ginger tea. That can be helpful. Um, licorice root. There's a lot of different herbal teas that have licorice root, chamomile as well. Um, all very soothing on the stomach and help provide a good environment to help your body naturally reduce H. pylori levels. Now, H. pylori can be tough though. Um, and one of the reasons why is that it has these efflux pumps. And these efflux pumps allow it to kind of like, so if the antibiotic gets into to its system, it's allow, it allows it to kind of kick it out. And they, H. pylori is a common one that will develop antibiotic resistance. A lot of times in the medical world, they see H. pylori, they give you an antibiotic, okay? But it can very much create an antibiotic resistance. And this is why the gold standard in the medical world is a triple therapy of probiotics. They, they use three different antibiotics, right, in order to bring H. pylori down. The good thing is when you do herbs, okay, herbs, there's a lot, when you do a blend of herbs, there's a lot a uh, lower chance of developing a resistance because we're coming at it from a multitude of different mechanisms, right? With, with different herbs and how they interact with H. pylori. And that's why we love the herbal approach because it's a lot harder for H. pylori to develop any sort of, sort of resistance because then again, we're coming at it with a whole blend of different uh, herbal, herbal constituents and the active compounds and ingredients, it's really hard for H. pylori to adapt to those. And that's why they can be so effective. And I found them to be even more effective than um, than antibiotics uh, when it comes to H. pylori. So there's different ways of going about it, but it's definitely something you want to get looked at, addressed, and tested for uh, without a doubt. Yeah, awesome. Well, let's move on to oxalates. So Don would like to know, what are your thoughts on oxalates? Are they a significant problem or is our body able to digest and handle them to some degree? So I know there's been a lot of buzz about oxalates lately. I kind of moved from the lectins, you know, that was kind of a buzz for a while. And now people are talking a lot about oxalates. So we test for oxalates in a urine test called the organic acids. And frequently do see that high, but Dr. Jackers, why don't you tell people what oxalates are to start? Yeah. Oxalates or oxalic acid is a, a plant defense compound that you're going to find in a lot of different plants, right? Spinach is kind of a, a notorious one for it, that uh, they're little crystalline compounds that protect the plant, right? They protect it from predators. They protect it from, uh, from pests, uh, different things like that. And so is it, so here's, you know, when I think about 
oxalates, certainly they can be problematic and they can be problematic for a lot of people. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily the oxalates in isolation that are problematic. I think that oxalates are, that humans have adapted to oxalates. In fact, they're a really, see our body is, is meant to have some level of stress, whether it's dietary stress. Um, I mean, fasting, right, is a stressor on the body. We're not even eating anything, not creating any mechanical stress. Oxalates are a, sort, uh, a form of mechanical stress on the digestive system and on the body. However, we should naturally be able to handle a certain amount of stress and actually some level of stress from our diet actually makes us stronger and more resilient, more stress resilient. Normally, we have a bacteria called Oxalobacter firminges, and this Oxalobacter eats oxalates. It loves oxalates. It's, it's a normal commensal member of our gut microbiome. However, some individuals, perhaps due to a history of using antibiotics or eating food, that had a lot of antibiotics in it, like a lot of conventional animal products, uh, things like that, they may have um, basically eliminated or, or killed off the oxalobacter in their system. And it's hard to regrow that. And other people have a lot of yeast overgrowth. And yeast itself, or fungal species, will release oxalates. So a lot of times we'll do a, a test called the organic acid test, and the organic acid test is a urine test, and it will look at your oxalate levels. And when the oxalate levels are high, one of the most common causes is higher fungal species, whether somebody's either living in mold and has um, colonization from the mold that they're living in, or they have candida overgrowth or some sort of fungal overgrowth in their intestines or in their sinuses or something like that, that itself can release oxalates and cause problems. And of course, some individuals just genetically don't metabolize oxalates as well either, or they have certain micronutrient, they have certain nutrient deficiencies. For example, a B6 deficiency makes somebody much more prone to having oxalate issues and poor oxalate metabolism. And vitamin B6 deficiencies or subclinical deficiencies, where it's not exactly showing up on the lab, but the, the levels are, are lower than they should be for optimal health are much more common than most people believe. And so these can be major contributors here for oxalate problems. And of course, the most common kidney stone is calcium oxalate, has to do with oxalate metabolism and cause stones in the kidneys. Um, a lot of people that do poorly with oxalates will have issues with their brain, autism or brain fog or um, neurodegenerative conditions, things like that. So the oxalates can be really problematic when you're getting a lot of them in your system. That also joint pain is another common uh, symptom that people will deal with when they have poor oxalate metabolism. So to kind of summarize that, oxalates can definitely be a problem for a lot of people, but it's not necessarily because of the dietary oxalates. It's more to do with what's happening in their microbiome what's happening with their mechanisms for breaking down, metabolizing oxalates. And there is a place, you know, if somebody does have, is being overwhelmed by oxalates and their system is not able to handle them for reducing oxalates, right? For, for a lower oxalate diet. And, you know, that is kind of the first place when we see high oxalates, we will reduce oxalates at least for a period of time and help strengthen the body's natural resilience. And so why don't you go into like what a lower oxalate diet would look like? Yeah, so I'm glad you you mentioned all the other causes of high oxalates rather than just diet because it it is definitely correlated. I see a lot of candida or mold at causing the high oxalates. So want to address that. And so, you know, with diet the issue is that most high oxalate foods are also very nutritious. So spinach is one of the very highest in oxalates, um, Swiss chard, a lot of the leafy greens, nuts, berries. So the foods that we're telling people to eat usually are the ones that are higher in oxalates. So whenever there is an issue with a food that is nutritious, I always tell my clients, I want you to be as least restrictive as possible to avoid symptoms. So I like to reduce just the high or very high oxalate foods so that we're getting in. We, we've got a great chart that's very low, low, medium, high, very high. So I like to start with just some of those that are on the higher end, and then they can even take 
um, something like potassium citrate. We've got a magnesium potassium citrate they can take with their oxalate foods to help to remove the oxalates from their system. Um, so that's what I, what I encourage people to do with the diet portion. And another really, really important part of this, because some people will see high oxalates and then they read something and they start to worry. And so they'll just take all oxalates out of their diet. And that is not what you want to do. You want to slowly reduce oxalates from your diet, because if you reduce them too drastically, you'll get something called oxalate dumping and you will feel terrible. So don't want you to do that. Just, um, you know, you can reach out to me. I'd be happy to send you that list and we can um, just reduce those very high to begin with. But the key, the key is to address the why. That's what we're always looking at is the why. So the why often, as Dr. Jocker said, is candida or mold exposure. So we want to look at that, address that while we slowly reduce the oxalates and then hopefully get the oxalates down and you can continue to eat those super nutritious foods. Yeah, that's a great summary there. And you mentioned citrates. Citrate naturally binds to oxalates and helps pull it out. We find citrates naturally in our citrus fruits, right? Lemon, lime. So, so using some lemon, some lime on your foods, if you tolerate those citrus uh, acids well, like if you don't have acid reflux, like you had mentioned earlier. Um, and so if you're, if you're doing that, that's going to provide natural citrates. And then we'll use a supplemental uh, citrate and usually magnesium is really helpful for people with oxalate issues. So we, we like to use the magnesium potassium citrate. It's been shown clinically and in studies to help bring down oxalate levels. Um, and so that works well. And then also, again, increasing B6, right? Or looking at least looking at B6 metabolism to see if that's an issue. So some vitamin B6, getting that on board can be helpful. And also a good binder in the gut. So there are certain binders like activated charcoal, uh, which is more of like a large binder that stays right in the gut. Oxalates, obviously they can get into the bloodstream, right? But if you're kind of catching them while they're in the gut, the charcoal can help bind and pull some of those out uh, to lower the overall oxalate load in the system before it gets out into the bloodstream. So that can be really, really helpful as far as that goes uh, as well. So just taking a couple of helpful supplements uh, to support your body while you're slightly, just gradually reducing the oxalate load, and trying to get to the root cause. I just wanted to interrupt this podcast to tell you about one of my new favorite products. It's called Mushroom Mind Boost by Purality Health. And what they did was they infused five of the most nutritious medicinal mushrooms with their micelle liposomal formula to create Mushroom Mind Boost. Long story short, their patented formula allows these rare, highly beneficial mushroom compounds full of polysaccharides that support your immune system, flavonoids, amino acids, carotenoids, folates, enzymes, and so much more to be safely shuttled directly into your bloodstream. The result is better energy, clearer thinking, improved memory retention, and feeling young and full of vigor. The best part, mushroom mind boost tastes just like chocolate syrup but without the sugar or artificial sweeteners. And you know what's great is they actually give you six months to try their formula so that you can feel the difference these compounds can make. And today we have a 30% off coupon for you. Just visit puralityhealth.com. That's P-U-R-A-L-I-T-Y-H-E-A-L-T-H.com and use the coupon code DRJ to access 30% off your purchase today. Medicinal mushrooms are incredible for your immune system, your brain, your energy levels, and for skin health and just helping you feel young and full of energy. You guys are going to love these products. Again, puralityhealth.com. Use the coupon code DRJ to access 30% off your purchase today. Okay, so let's move on to cortisol. So Lady Virgo on YouTube, what do I do and what supplements are best for lowering cortisol levels? So this is something I yeah. see all the time because people are so stressed and cortisol is our stress hormone. So the, the most important thing to do is to address the stress, you know, learning ways to manage stress to help naturally lower the cortisol. But what, what are some of the supplements you recommend, Dr. Jockers? Yeah, for sure. And so, yeah, keeping stress under control, learning how to breathe properly is really key, prioritizing good sleep, um, good sleep hygiene is critical, making sure that 
you know, after dark, you're, you're, you're dimming your lights, putting on blue light, blocking glasses, things like that. Going out in the morning and taking a morning walk, actually getting morning sun exposure and movement can help bring down cortisol uh, throughout the day, right? Can actually help balance cortisol, I should say. Because um, some people actually already have too low cortisol. They don't have a good awakening response. And so they're really, really tired when they wake up. So sun exposure in the morning um, and then also getting movement in, really helpful for optimizing your cortisol rhythm. And then just for balancing cortisol. So, you know, this idea of high cortisol, yeah, there are people for sure that are producing too much cortisol, but a lot of times actually underproducing cortisol, right? Or not metabolizing cortisol properly. And so, and they just kind of think, oh, because I'm I'm wired and tired, um, or I just, I, you know, I don't feel my best, it's a cortisol issue. And it could be. Um, and so you want supplements. I like supplements that help to balance or modulate cortisol, right? Because at certain times of the day, you want higher cortisol and other times of the day, earlier in the day, you want more cortisol lower. And then later in the day, you want less cortisol, right? But you really want it to be in the proper rhythm. So one of the best, one of the, the, the things that's most well clinically studied is ashwagandha. Ashwagandha has been shown to really balance and modulate cortisol effectively. It's a Indian Ayurvedic adaptogenic herb, right? And adaptogens act kind of like a, a thermostat where, you know, if, if the temperature in the room, if, if you've got it set at 70 degrees, the thermostat, but it gets up to 75, it's going to turn on the air conditioning and bring it down to 70. And if it's, you know, if, if it's cold, if it's 65, it's going to turn on the heat and bring it back up to 70. That's really what ashwagandha does. There's other good, good herbs as well that are kind of in the similar classification of adaptogens. That's a really good one. Passion flower can be good. Chamomile uh, is a, is another good one. Um, let's see, uh, reishi mushroom, rhodiola. A lot of these these adaptogenic herbs can be really helpful there. Um, I also find vitamin C being really helpful for modulating cortisol levels. Um, so getting enough vitamin C on board can be really helpful. If your body's under under, if you're inflamed you're going to have a poor cortisol rhythm. So if the more inflammation you have in your system in general, that can throw off your cortisol and your blood sugar, right? Your blood sugar can be thrown off, which cortisol is really a glucocorticoid. Its job is really to raise blood glucose. And uh, and so if you're inflamed, that can be a major factor with this. So doing things obviously to help bring down inflammation as well are super important. Yeah, and other stressors on the body. So we often think of mental and emotional stress, but gut infections are a stressor on the body. So looking at what else mm. could be stressing the body. Um, I love L-theanine for high cortisol. Mm. That's one of yeah. my favorite compounds. Yeah, um, magnesium. Yes, yep. uh, I love our Brain Calm Magnesium is probably one of most popular products <laughs> we've had. So I love that one. I'm glad you mentioned walks in nature because that is something I recommend to just about every client. Because like I said, most people are dealing with high stress. And another pattern I see is they've been in a high stress kind of fight or flight situation for a long time. And then eventually the body just kind of tanks and their cortisol tanks. So they they feel like they're still stressed out and that cortisol is high. But like you said, they could actually be dealing with very low cortisol. So I like to test, you know, the Dutch test is great. It looks at metabolized and free cortisol, and you can see your rhythm. So cortisol should spike in the morning about three hours after waking up and then just have a steady decline through the rest of the day until you go to bed. And what I see for some people is it's low in the morning, kind of stays low all day, and then at night goes up. So they're not getting good restful sleep because they have this high cortisol at night. So you you really can't sleep if your cortisol is high. So um, I love the Dutch test for that. So I would definitely, if you're struggling with this and you're not really sure, or you've been dealing with stress for a long time, I would really encourage you to, to do that test just so you can get a accurate picture of what your cortisol is and then try some of these compounds because like Dr. Jocker says, they're adaptogens. So whether it's high or it's low, they can, it can be helpful. So, and we've got a great compound, a, a blend called cortisol defense that mm. a lot of my clients yeah. just really love. Yeah, for sure. And and yeah, talking about going out in nature in Japan, what they do is they, you know, a lot of these these businessmen are working long hours. You know, they have very, very good discipline and hard work ethic is really um prized over in Japan. So a lot of these men they're working 60 hour weeks, whatever it is, they get stressed out, burnt out, they're having all these health issues. And one of the first things they do is they put them out 
you know, they, they have them go out for like a week to two weeks in nature, right? So they have them get out of the city. They go to like a little, little, you know, small little place, little log cabin or something like that in nature and forest bathe, right? And it's actually like a clinic, right? That's what they do for people that are depressed, burnt out, right? Have these different health issues. It's like, okay, spend a week out in nature, um, you know, away from your cell phone and, and these people get better, right? And they're able to significantly reduce their healthcare costs because of this, this sort of, um, you know, this sort of treatment. So this is something that you should be trying to do as well. Reducing your time on it, on electronics can be a really, really big factor with, with getting your stress hormones back in balance, trying to get out in nature. You know, when you get out in nature, there's healthy electromagnetic frequencies that help to naturally bring you back into homeostasis balance and help optimize your health. Um, there's natural essential oils that come are coming from the trees, right. That, um, have a healthy rhythm to them and, and, uh, they, they provide a stress lowering effect and a mood enhancing effect on the body as well. So really powerful stuff. And then, yeah, like magnesium usually is our, our, our first go-to actually, even before we go into the herbs, um, just getting some magnesium on board because so many people are deficient in magnesium. And if you've lived a very stressful lifestyle, you're running through that magnesium. And so getting some really good magnesium on board can be helpful. Yeah. All right, let's go to our last question. Okay, uh, Lisa wants to know, what should your diet look like if you don't have a gallbladder? So we get so many questions about gallbladder health and we've got a lot of great articles. Um, we'll of course answer this one, but I do encourage you to go to our website and type in gallbladder in the search bar and you will see lots of articles on gallbladder. Um, whether you don't have a gallbladder or if you have gallbladder issues, a lot of people have their gallbladder and they're trying to avoid losing the gallbladder because that is a very common surgery. So um, lots of information about supporting gallbladder health too. So Dr. Jockers, with no gallbladder, what should your diet look like? Yeah. So some people with, without a gall, well, most people without a gallbladder, I mean, we got to think about, okay, why do they not have a gallbladder? Well, we talked about stomach acid earlier. Okay. And so when you are not producing enough stomach acid, you are not able to produce enough bile, meaning that the stomach acid, you should have a very, very acidic acid. We talked about getting it down to 1.5 or so uh, pH. And then as it goes into the small intestine, so it goes through the pyloric sphincter, which separates the stomach from the small intestine, it hits certain receptors in the small intestine. And those receptors say, okay, acidic bolus coming in, we need to produce an alkaline substance that one of the main alkaline substances is bile as well as uh, bicarbonate coming from the pancreas. So it causes the bile ducts to contract and release the bile. Um, and that's from your gallbladder, whereas your storage form, gallbladder is actually where you, where you store bile. You don't produce it. You produce it in the liver and it releases that bile, contracts it, releases that bile into the small intestine where it's supposed to be uh, released. And then you get the uh, fat emulsification that bile provides. And bile is also antimicrobial, right? So it helps keep the overall bacterial balance under control in the small intestine, which is super important. And it also helps eliminate toxins and waste out of our system. So very, very important. Now, the problem is that a lot of people are not producing enough stomach acid, so they're not getting that good bile release. So the bile just sits in the in the um, gallbladder, right? It doesn't release very well. And now over time, if it's just sitting there, it's sluggish, and now it can start to develop gallstones. On top of that, hypothyroidism actually is one of the major contributing factors when it comes to low stomach acid because you need good thyroid hormone production to activate the stomach acid to produce it. And then you also need it to uh, activate the gallbladder, right? And to produce the right consistency of the bile because mo when people have gallbladder issues, when they, they, they'll, they'll end up with very thick, sluggish bile that has a lot more cholesterol. The, the, so bile is really three things, bilirubin, which is a breakdown product of red blood cells, cholesterol, and bile salts, these particular salts, choline, taurine. And so the salts give it fluidity, meaning that make it move, right? Give it um, more of a the ability to flow. And obviously the cholesterol component is making it more is thicker. And so um, these people, when they when they have hypothyroidism, poor thyroid hormone activation, you're going to end up with thicker, slower moving, more sluggish bile, and then that is an environment that can cause gallstones, right? And and obviously that's typically the reason why people are getting their gallbladder taken out is these gallstones building up in there and causing problems. Now, if you just get the gallbladder taken out, 
You haven't actually got to the root cause because the problem wasn't the gallbladder. We they just the the the, pro, the symptom was in the gallbladder. That was way downstream where the gallstones got stuck in the bile duct and caused a you know significant symptoms and pain and a gallbladder attack. And so we've got to get to the root cause. And what is the root cause? Oftentimes there's infections that are associated. H. pylori we mentioned right being a a one of the main ones that's associated with both hypothyroidism as well as gallstones and uh, people getting their gallbladder taken out. So we want to address that. There's different parasites uh, that are also major factors there. There's even Klebsiella and other bacterial um, imbalances that can cause problems. Candida and other yeast can cause issues in there. And so all of those can cause sluggish bile flow. And uh, you know, again, if you had a, your gallbladder taken out, you still have bile being produced in the liver and there's a good chance you have congested bile ducts in the liver as well. And so we want to obviously address the root cause. And then when we're looking at the diet, of course, we know that bile's main job is, you know, one of its main jobs is fat emulsification. So you're going to need to lower the amount of fat that you consume in a meal. Meanwhile, you want to support your stomach acid production. So you may want to take something like betaine, hydro, uh, betaine, uh, hydrochloric acid, right? And so um, betaine HCL, uh, which helps bring your stomach acid down low enough, right? To be able to break down the protein effectively. Ox bile, supplementing with ox bile can be really helpful. Pancreatic enzymes, all helpful for the digestive process. So lowering the amount of fat. So usually I'll recommend for people to consume roughly about 25, 30 grams of healthy fat in a meal or more, depending on how many calories they need. But usually most people do just fine with 25 to 30 grams of healthy fats coming from things like extra virgin olive oil or coconut oil or avocado or um, grass-fed meats, wild-caught fish, eggs, things like that. With, with somebody that doesn't have a, a gallbladder, we may need to reduce that down to 20 or 15 grams, kind of find an area where they can metabolize it and they feel good when they eat that food. But if they're doing too much fat, they don't feel good, right? They, they, they feel really nauseous. Food just sits in their stomach. They they get more gas, bloating, constipation, diarrhea. So we may need to lower the amount of fat in the meal and eat more frequent meals. So normally I'm a huge fan of two to three meals, you know, in somewhere around a you know a eight hour eating window or something like that. So with people without a gallbladder, in some cases, some people are without a gallbladder are able to do that just fine. Um, for some other ones. They need small meals every, let's say, three hours or so within their eating window. And so, um, you know, and you always want to try to get somewhere around 25, 30 grams or so of protein in every single meal, okay, and then get some healthy fats on board. And then you can obviously add in colorful vegetables, fruit, things like that um, to, to support that. But uh, you're going to need to, to reduce um, the amount of fat in your meal when you don't have a gallbladder for most, in most cases, I have seen people that don't have a gallbladder and they do just fine eating higher fat meals, right? Healthy fats and, uh, and proteins. But, you know, we, we have to look at that. And if you are having issues with your digestion, reduce the amount of fat in those meals and po potentially eat more frequently. Yeah, and then also some bile-healthy foods to include. So lemons and limes are great, apple cider vinegar, um, cilantro, parsley. A lot of the herbs are great for bile flow. Um, dandelion greens are one of my favorites. Um, celery, turmeric, green tea. So there's a lot of different bile-healthy foods you can also add to the when you are having healthy fats or just when you're not, you know, just to help support bile flow and to support liver health. So the things you do to support gallbladder support the liver. So we want to support the liver and the bile ducts in the liver so that you don't have that stagnant bile in the liver. So those would be other suggestions with diet. Yeah, for sure. That's great. Really good information there. We always say bitter is good for the liver. So things that are more of those bitter types of herbs, really, really good for liver function. And again, the gallbladder is just really an appendage of the liver. So it's almost like you got a part of your liver taken out, right? A storage area. And so you want to really support your liver, support bioflow when you do that. There's other good supplements as well. We have a great one called Bioflow Support that has things like dandelion. You can do dandelion root tea, ginger tea, dandelion root tea, really good for, for bioflow. And we have a great supplement. It's got bile salts in it, bile flow support. It's got different bile salts, choline. Um, it's got um, 
dandelion in there, a bunch of different herbs that help support bioflow, right? So check that out. There's another one called Tudka as well, Tudka, which has got a lot of good research on it as far as helping regenerate liver cells as well as um, supporting really good bioflow. So those can also be very helpful supplements for individuals that have had this that that can be you know really supportive with this process. So good stuff. I know I think we're out of time here. Um, guys, we could just talk for hours on all these different topics, but uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed this and you can send questions into, into us on my YouTube channel, on, on my Instagram, Dr. David Jockers on Instagram. If you're not following me, Facebook, you can also send them to info at drjockers.com. You have great questions like these that you want addressed on the next Q and A. And again, reach out to Melissa. Like I had mentioned earlier, she works with people all around the world, helps look at labs, helps customize um, natural health plans to help people get well and reach their health goals. So you can find her at melissa at drjockers.com. That is her email address, melissa at drjockers.com. Thanks again, Melissa, for joining us. And we'll see everybody on a future podcast. Be blessed. Well, that's all for this show. And I want to thank you again for spending your valuable time with me today. And if there was something you heard in this interview that you have questions on or you want to dive into deeper, then drjockers.com is the best place to go. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider taking just a quick moment and giving us a great review. Your reviews help us influence more people and transform more lives. And if you took something valuable away from this episode, then please share it with someone in your life you know it can help. We'll see you soon on a future podcast. Be blessed, everybody.